0: Good evening and welcome to our Good Friday service. We're glad you're here with us this evening. And, uh, you know, it's bad enough I have to run into traffic coming out from Schaumburg, but now getting up to the podium with so many of them up here, I just have to wait my turn. and It's like waiting on Randall Road for the lights to change, I'm telling you. But we're really blessed to have them, aren't we? We are really, really blessed to have them. Well, again, it's Good Friday, meaning that Sunday is just two days away. That's the way it works. And we would love for you to invite people out to our Easter service this Sunday. I think now is an opportune time, an incredible opportunity to do just that. But some of you may be apprehensive. Some of you might not know how to bridge that conversation how to invite someone. Maybe you've invited people and your neighbors for a very long time, and they've always said no, and you just kind of gave them up, saying, Lord, they're in your hands. What happens to them is their fault, you know. So to help you in your inviting of your neighbors and friends and family to our Easter service, I prepared a little instructional video for you. Check this out. It's your
1: neighbors, Jim and Joanna Sanders. Yeah, we made you some Easter eggs. We sure did. Yeah. Hey, since you're the man of the house, I want to come talk to you mono-e-mano. (laughs) Oh! See what he did there? You're words. Whoa, 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 whoa. Just take a minute. I don't want to take away from that pagan golf tournament that you're probably watching in there. But it did hit me when I saw the trashy secular Easter decorations that you have outside your house that you probably don't go to church to worship our Lord and Savior except for Christmas and Easter like 68.7% of the rest of the American population. Oh, you're my little vampire. None for the neighbors. Stay on track. Oh, oh, well, the reason why we're here is because we wanted to invite you to our Easter services at our church. Now, I've made the plan of salvation into these Easter eggs here, and each color represents something you've done wrong. Sure does. Whoa, he's flatlining. Whoa, 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 whoa. What my dear wife is trying to say, when we leave on a Sunday morning to go to church, your car stays out in the driveway, which makes me know that you probably don't go to church unless you're holding a church service in there or something, but I don't think so. So how about you pack up your brood and you come with us to church service on Easter celebration Sunday, huh?
0: Okay, sure. I mean, my, my wife and I were just talking about where we would go this Easter, so sure, we'll give your your church a shot. Houston,
1: we have a problem. What's the matter? No one's ever said yes to us before. Oh, uh, what do we do? Well, we just back away slowly. Oh, All Oh, not right. Right. Okay, <laughs> okay. okay, don't look at him in the oh, eye. Oh, oh. He could take away your soul. Okay. okay. All uh, right. Well, just leave the eggs in the mailbox. We sure will. Now, the big red one represents your sin. <laughs> it's the sin egg. All righty <laughs> We hope to see you there. We'll save you a seat, okay? Really? No, that's just an intimidation tactic. Okay, toodles.
0: (laughs) Just so you know, we've hired them to lead our evangelistic efforts here at Calvary. We thought they were pretty, uh, pretty effective. But again, you know, it's been a tough year for all of us, and it's been a tough year for our whole nation. And, and now more than ever, I think we have an ample opportunity to talk to people about Jesus Christ, to invite them to church, to hear his word. And again, some people are hesitant. Some people still aren't quite sure on how they should go about doing that. And often we make it more complex than it needs to be. I find that keeping it very simple is always the most effective manner in which presenting the gospel. You know, Jesus dealt with people just like you and I. They lived in a different time. They had different Struggles, they had different uh, issues that they were contending with at that time. But one of the great ways that Jesus always brought about a conversation concerning things that were truly important was by simply asking them questions simple questions. But they were so simple that they were profound in the scope and the ramification of what they implied there's a question like this one that we find in matthew's gospel that i think is incredibly important and relevant today as jesus asked he said for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul or what will a man give in exchange for his soul two simple questions that would have provoked the person that he was speaking to, to really contemplate the question being asked. That's what we need to do today. We need to engage in the most basic element of the Christian faith, and that is mortality versus immortality. Christianity is not about red or blue states. It's not about politics. Christianity is not in play when it comes to the response to the COVID virus, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Christian faith comes down to mortality versus immortality. And this question so simply asks the person to think about it for themselves, asking them that question. Hey, what would you be able, what would you be willing to give up for your soul? What would you be able, I should say more specifically, to gain in exchange for your soul? And of course, they may ask many questions at this point. I use this question all the time in my evangelism, sharing the faith, telling people about Jesus. And like I said earlier, we are in an incredible moment of opportunity. If you don't think that people are considering their personal mortality right now, you're fooling yourselves. It is on the forefront of their minds. It has been for the last year. And it doesn't matter what technological advance we make or what medical leap forward we take. Each person is going to one day die. It's assured as being taxed incredibly here in the state of Illinois. We know that for sure, don't we? That each one of us, at one moment or another, is going to die one way or another. And Jesus would often ask these questions and ask people to think about them, to contemplate them. This question places a value on the person's soul. It introduces the concept of eternal life. It asks a person to consider that their life hangs in the balance based upon the manner in which they answer this question. And scholars debate if Jesus was actually saying, what would you trade for your soul? Or, after you lose your life, what would you exchange to regain your life once again? It reminds me of a a story that I heard some time ago. It was about a man here in Chicago who wanted to escape the Chicago winters. (laughs) Right? We can all relate to that. But his wife was on a business trip. They were heading down to Florida, each flying separately, him arriving first her arriving the next day. And when he got down there, he realized that his cell phone battery had died and he didn't have his charger with him. And so he needed to contact his wife. He needed to get a message to her that he had arrived safely and that he was waiting for her arrival the next day. So he quickly went to the lobby and asked the hotel if he could could use their person, you know, the hotel community computer. And he shot her an email but when he sat down, he realized they didn't remember her address. And inadvertently, he you know, transposed two of the characters of the email address. And that email find, found its way to a woman who just earlier that month had lost her husband. And while she was sitting behind her computer, she saw an email pop up and she read it and she screamed at the height of her lungs her family ran up to find out what had happened and she received this email dearest wife i just checked in everything prepared for your arrival tomorrow (laughs) sincerely your eternally loving husband whoops but the bible tells us very clearly that tomorrow is promised to no one there's nothing that we can do to prolong the number of days that god has allotted each and every one of us no matter what we do no matter how hard we try the reality is is that one day we will face that moment that we close our eyes here and open our eyes in eternity So we need to remember why today is so important. And knowing the importance of this day places a beautiful context, the only context, for Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. The day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But do you know, more and more articles are being written, especially after Lifeway had put out this extensive survey that they did polling people across america specifically christians asking them the theological meaning of the various days that the christian faith uh, truly uh, observed such as christmas and easter and when it came to the crucifixion of jesus christ all of them summed it up in a very simple way he he died for our sins he died on our behalf But shockingly, when those same people took that information to the world around them, they found out very quickly that the world regarded such notions as silliness, foolishness, craziness. It's because they don't think about things the same way you do as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now this shouldn't surprise us. Do you know that just 30 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ, when Paul the Apostle made him, him, his way into the known world, he ran into various ideas and philosophies that those worlds carried. Religious and secular both. And the letter, in the letter to the Corinthians, he wrote this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power God. But why was it foolishness to them? The word foolishness here means it was lunacy, crazy, something that simply didn't make any sense to those who were hearing. And again, if you enjoy uh, reading the scriptures, you will realize very quickly that as the gospel of Jesus Christ, based in Judaism, made its way into the known world, the Gentile world, as the Bible would call it, it faced incredible opposition, ideologically, from the very beginning. When you look at Acts chapter 8, you realize that the philosophers of that time that were found in that city found what Paul was saying was incredibly intriguing all the way up until the time he talked about the resurrection. Because their ideas of the physical body was that it was completely corrupt. And who would ever want to physically come back to this world once again? And so it says that they dismissed him. But it also tells us very clearly what they believed at that time. And that is that they were always looking for something new to put their hope and trust within. They were always looking for new ideas, and that's why Paul's ideas were so attractive to them initially. Until he said something that was so imperative to his conversation, and yet that was the moment in which they dismissed him. Here we are 2,000 years later. And when we approach people in the, the, the mindset that we personally have, we often discover that the gospel doesn't seem to make sense to them anymore. You know, if you say to them, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? They're already wrestling in their minds saying, I don't believe that there is a heaven, so why would I want to go there? This is all that there is to life. There isn't anything better. There isn't anything more. And so if they discount heaven, of course they discount hell. And they simply believe that by not believing it, it doesn't make it real any longer for them to consider. That's just the reality of the conversation that we're engaged in. It was the same opposition that Paul ran into. And we still run into it today if we are going to be effective in sharing the gospel with people, the good news, and reminding them of the significance of Good Friday and of Resurrection Sunday, we need to know where they're coming from. And may I suggest that you begin to put within your evangelistic arsenal a skill of listening. Listening to where they're coming from. Understanding their viewpoints, regardless if you agree with it or not. Understanding what they uh, uh, hold to, that you may answer their questions more specifically and more directly. This year I had the opportunity of teaching a homeschool, high school, that's a mouthful right there, philosophy class. Me teaching a ph- high school philosophy class is like Yogi Bear in charge of the picnic basket. Okay, But we are having a great time in the class together. When they initially came into the class, I think all of them looked at the textbook, they looked at what we were going to be looking at at in the syllabus, and they were saying, what in the world did my parents ever sign me up for, and why did I agree to it? But as we've been going, and we've been looking at the various ideas currently in our world today, from the influence of existentialism, a nihilism, when we begin to venture into pragmatism, these big words that many in America don't know what they mean began to outline for them and help them understand why the world thinks what it thinks. Many consider this a psychological conversation that it revolves around psychology, and that's partially true. But there's a second dynamic that we need to understand as individuals if we're going to be effective in sharing and to inviting people to the Easter service and not coming off like our two experts that we saw earlier. It's not only a psychological conversation, but it's also a uh, philosophical conversation that we need to have. Even unbeknownst to the individuals, they still believe things that they hold to and they act upon those beliefs. They may not know that it it is easily categorized in one of the various philosophies. Our, Our world today isn't influenced by the classics, the Socrates, the Plato's, the Aristotle's any longer. It's newer individuals like Soren Kierkegaard and Purse, who came up with the ideas of pragmatism. I throw this out there to you because I want you to start thinking about what I'm about to say next. Because what we need to do is we need to discuss intelligently the Christian faith with our current community around us today. And you may be sitting here today, one of those people who don't know Jesus Christ and don't understand the bearing of Christianity upon your life. Maybe over the course of this last year you have felt that Christianity has been reduced to a political party or a statement concerning the medical advances that we have made over the years. Christianity has been around for 2,000 years before any of those things were even in existence. Please let us understand that the age of the United States of America pales in comparison to the number of millennia that Christianity has existed. And I think that if Christianity can thrive under the Caesars, Caesar Nero, who persecuted Christians in such a horrific way, I think we can survive today, don't you? But people need to understand that the bedrock of Christianity discusses the contrast between morality i'm sorry uh, mortality and immortality but we need to learn how people think a famous story that once came out about a college student who in his particular philosophy class brought up the idea of the existence of god and as he was Uh, thoroughly proving his points concerning the existence of God, the professor stopped him in his tracks and asked the class these three questions, leading the class to his ultimate answer, and that is that there is no God. And the professor said to the class, interrupting the student that was giving the presentation, he said, has anyone in this class ever heard God? And of course, the class was silent. No one spoke. Has anyone in the class ever touched God? Again, no one spoke. They couldn't. Has anyone in the class seen God? The class remained silent. The professor then concluded, then based on this evidence alone, it determines definitively that there is no God. Well, that young man came back And he asked the professor if he had permission to reply to his criticism. And so the young man stood up in the class and said to the class this, Has anyone in this class ever heard our professor's brain? Silence. Has anyone in the class ever touched our professor's brain? Absolute silence. Has anyone in the class seen our professor's brain? When no one in the class dared to speak, the student then concluded, then according to the professor's logic, it must be true that our professor has no brain. That's so true, isn't it? Dean and I always discuss our inability to understand how people think today. Maybe you've run into that same dilemma yourself. In your conversations with people, you find and discover very quickly that they're coming from a completely different direction than you're accustomed to. And you and I need to know that we need to approach them in a manner in which we'll speak to them where they are at. So let us begin by reminding ourselves why today is so important. Because I think there is some ambiguity in the minds of Christians today. Why we talk about Good Friday, the death of Jesus Christ, which by no means was good for Jesus, right? He suffered, he died, he was tortured, he was killed, agonized in pain for hours upon the cross, and yet we call it Good Friday. If I go one step further, the book of Hebrew tells us that he joyfully went to the cross that day. So what happened? What occurred? What transpired at that moment? What happened 2,000 years ago that continued to reverberate through the, the, uh, the halls of history? And are still today confronting people in 2021. And I believe that in the background of the current crisis that we are going through, speak even louder. We just need to take this opportunity. And in the love and the grace of God, share with them. That their mortality is not based upon a vaccination. It's based upon the immortality in which God can provide for them. Through Jesus Christ. But if we are going to understand what happened 2,000 years ago, it must begin with our understanding of three words that Jesus Christ spoke from the cross. Those three words are found in John 19 30. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. What did he mean by those three words? Those words are significant in, in, in such a dynamic way, in such an incredible way, that understanding those three words will change the course of your conversation with the people that you have. What is finished? What has been accomplished at the cross? To help us understand those three words, let me direct your attention to three hours. Those three hours were found between high noon and three o'clock in the afternoon. There were hours that darkness covered the earth. The Bible tells us that as Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning, he hung from the cross for three hours, and then at noon, everything grew dark. And something extraordinary happened. Was happening within those three hours. And those who witnessed it even recorded uh, their perplexion concerning the, what was taking place. They didn't fully understand what was happening within those three hours. But I believe understanding the totality of Scripture helps us to define and to interpret those three hours. So to understand the three words, it is finished, we must first understand what transpired in those three hours. And it was one of the greatest transactions that ever took place. It took place between God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And the first hint to our discovering the proper interpretation of those three hours is to understand the purpose of the darkness. It was fulfilling a prophecy found in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. When Amos wrote, I'll read it to you, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Joel also spoke about a darkening, and the earth quakes before them, he wrote. The heavens trembled, and the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminished in their brightness." One scholar wrote about the imagery that is found in the Bible, and he said that when darkness is displayed throughout the Bible, it always indicates judgment. God's judgment. Not a popular topic today. I've never seen God's judgment found in a church growth book. Preach on God's judgment, and you will be guaranteed to drive people from your church. But God's judgment is the first true thing that we need to understand about those three hours. Let us understand that if we believe that Jesus Christ died in our place, died for our sins, then we have to understand that the judgment that was prescribed to us due to the sins that we had committed at that moment in time fell on the shoulders of Jesus Christ where God the Father poured out His wrath upon His Son, as Jesus Christ hung there for the sins of the world. Let us understand that sin is what, of course, divides us from God the Father, a conversation that people don't want to have anymore. And again, there's a reason for that. A recent survey just told us that the majority of Americans believe that all people are born good and then their circumstances change them. But theologically, we know just the opposite to be true. For the heart is desperately wicked and who can know it, the psalmist writes. Let us understand that the very first aspect was a course of judgment that God the Father was pouring out upon his Son. And in the midst of that darkness as Jesus hung there on the cross, in his most agonizing moment of those three hours, he indicated that moment by these words. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? The second aspect of those three hours that we need to understand is separation. Separation from God. The punishment of hell is is not the punishment that God prescribed for people. It was created for the devil and his angels. But sin cannot enter into the presence of God. Sin cannot come before Him. And so there's no other place for us to reside for all eternity. Because sin cannot be be brought before Him. The second element of that judgment is separation from God. Jesus Christ experienced that on the cross so you and I don't have to. That through Christ we can have that personal relationship with God the Father that He's always desired to have from the very beginning. That sin severed the moment of the fall of Adam in the garden. As Jesus cried out those words, many write that that was the most agonizing moment in the crucifixion for Christ. As Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite pastors, wrote, in that ultimate moment of his agony, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was as if the Father had turned his back on the Son as Jesus bore the sins of humanity. Then Jesus declared, it is finished. The provision of redemption was now complete. People don't like to admit when they're wrong. I don't like to admit I'm wrong. Usually I find out that when I think I'm wrong, I'm not. No, I'm kidding. just wanted to see if you were still listening. It's easy to conclude that everyone around you is wrong, Right? Especially as a Christian, we like to often think that we're the only sane person in this entire world. Everyone else has gone crazy, you know. Wow. There's a perfect example of what not to do. (laughs) Thank you, Jeff. But in that darkness, as a result of sin, that separation took place and the final stage of that judgment occurred. Jesus, dismissing his spirit, died there on the cross. Theologically, Jesus was perfect and would have never died naturally. But because of his perfection, and because of the fact of the mission in which he was sent to do and to accomplish, he gave himself for you and I. And what we we were going to experience... Has all been poured out upon him, the darkness of judgment, the separation from God, eternal death. He bore it all there on the cross. The second thing that we need to know that in that moment, the Bible tells us very clearly, in Mark chapter 15, verse 38. It says very clearly, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The barrier that kept us separated from God had now been bridged through the death of Jesus Christ. God made a way back for you and I. A means by which to be redeemed from the sins in which we had committed. As the Jewish people knew it and they read it as such, they said, though our sins were as scarlet, now they can be as white as. I can be as white as snow. The beautiful idea that not only did Jesus Christ uh, redeem us, but he also adopted us and called us sons and daughters. You know, I was personally adopted. Many of you know that by my dad. And I was very grateful for the fact that I was adopted. I was adopted from a place in Evanston called The Cradle. Some of you may have heard of it. It was a pretty famous adoption agency. And just years prior to that, A gentleman named Bob Hope adopted several kids from the same place. I could have been Eric Hope, but I missed it by that much. But being adopted, I realized a love could be established between two people who were not biologically connected. And sometimes it even worked in my favor. I'll never forget driving up to my house in my car And there, as I was going to introduce my girlfriend at that time to my parents, there was my dad cutting the grass with a brown shirt, plaid shorts, dark socks, and white shoes. I just looked at her and said, don't worry, I'm adopted. (laughs) Though I did inherit his hairline. But we've been adopted again. We've been adopted by Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says we can be called sons and daughters, prince and princesses of the kingdom of God. The way has been made where Jesus then prefaced that moment of the crucifixion when he said, and then Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, if we just stopped there and contemplated just that, it would be sufficient for us for this evening, but it can't end there. Because I think all of us need to be reminded of this next point this evening. All of us do. And it is this At the cross of Jesus Christ, the greatest act of love occurred. The greatest act of love occurred. And you may say to yourself, I don't understand the brutality that he experienced in that moment, on that day. How in the world could this ever scream, I love you, to the entire world? Because God the Father said so. In one of the most famous verses of all the Bible, John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. When God says that He so loved the world, He is saying that I demonstrated my love for you in the act of giving you my Son on your behalf. Now, many of us growing up may have come to know that verse to mean that God loved us just so much, you know, and threw his arms way out. I've even heard it taught like that. He loved you so much that he threw out his arms, and that's how wide it was on the cross. Guys, look to me when I say this. God demonstrated his love in such a way that time and history and the troubles of this world could never, ever erase it. I don't care what you are experiencing, what you are going through. And at those moments of trial, troubles, and tribulations, it's easy to conclude that God doesn't love me, right? When he blesses, it's easy to say God loves me. And so many Christians get into this roller coaster of up and down and back and forth because one day they think God loves them because things are going great. And the next thing, you know, my goodness, they've run out of brown rice at Chipotle and God hates me, you know. God said, no, it's not based on your circumstances. If you ever come to a moment in time where you doubt God's love for you, just look back and there, remember the cross. And 2,000 years later, the world is still reeling in the wake of that event. And let's be honest, I don't care what the world throws at us. I don't care what takes place. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing. We'll read that in just a moment. In 1992, a book came out. Now I'm really going back, but it's still in publication today. In fact, I think the latest printing of it was in 2015. It was a book written by a man named Gary Chapman. Some of you may remember that name. And that book was the five languages of love, or the five love languages. I personally didn't really like that book because I didn't find my love languages in there. Sarcasm, humor, and cutting the crust off my peanut butter and jellies. But one of the problems that I had with that book is that I believe that that book inadvertently, and I don't believe that he had any malice intent when he wrote it, but inadvertently made love all about us, But the most dynamic form of love ever shown had nothing to do with self. It was a selfless act. God is not asking us to discover one of our five love languages being words of affirmation or quality time or giving of gifts. Okay, that one you can use with me. Yeah, acts of service or physical touch. When God asks me to love my wife, and this was really the context of the book was in a marriage, God is asking me to love my wife the same way that Jesus Christ loved me. And that was so vastly superior to anything found in those five love languages. And of course, Paul defined that love because the word agape that was used there was not a word that people were readily and uh, familiar with its definition. They heard the word, but they didn't really know what the definition was unless it was placed in a context. I'm sure you've seen that in a spelling bee. Spell the word pizza. Can you use it in a sentence, please? Yeah. But Paul wrote this to us that love is long it suffers long and is kind love does not envy love does not parade itself it is not puffed up love does not behave rudely and it certainly does not seek its own does not seek its own it's not provoked it thinks no evil it does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth bear excuse me, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So, 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 so vastly superior to any one of those five love languages. But so many are looking for God to love them within the confines of one of those love languages that they miss the overall. That He loved you so much and demonstrated that love in such a way that nothing in history could ever erase it i love what c.h spurgeon said when he said that it wasn't the nails of the cross that held him to the cross it was the love for you and i that held him there but i say all of this this morning because as christians The ultimate tenet of Christianity is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the only way we're going to look to bridge that gap, to invite people, to share the gospel, is if we truly love them. So how do we love them in such a way? You may be personally frustrated. You may see the insanity going on around you and contribute it to the people who are, are prescribing this and pushing this forward. But let us understand that those individuals are individuals that God wants to save as much as He wanted to save you and I. So let us all understand this evening as we show you this last verse found in 1 John the reason that you and I can love in such a way to risk it all, to share the gospel with those people who do not know Him, is because we love Him because He first loved us. And once you discover the incredible impact of the love of God in your life, then you will understand why we celebrate Good Friday. And why Jesus went to the cross joyfully. Because He knew It was paving a way for us to come back to Him. We have an extraordinary opportunity. People are thinking about their personal mortality each and every day. And only you, who know Christ, have the answer to solve the ultimate problem of death that each and every person faces in their life.